0: Let's open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to say with the songs that we've just sung, forever he will be the Lamb on the throne. The King is exalted. The next song, All to Jesus I Surrender. The implication of having the king on the throne means that we must surrender to him. Father, I pray that that would be the reality of all of our hearts this morning. Whether saved or unsaved, break us, Lord. That we would bow before you in humble submission to your lordship. That you may be magnified in every life that is present here. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the sufficiency of your word. You speak and you change lives through it. Magnify yourself by doing that, Lord. Speak and change our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. (coughs) I appreciate the songs we've uh, just sung, falls in line with what we will speak about this morning. Last time I preached we looked at the Old Testament perspective of the kingdom. There's much confusion on this topic, and I am no master on it at all, um, and by no means are we able to cover every passage in the New Testament this morning. And that is what we will look at this morning as the New Testament perspective of the kingdom. As we've just sung, forever he will be the lamb on the throne. And that in itself causes confusion. The question is, is he on the throne? The answer is yes and no. Yes, He is on the throne next to the Father, exalted, having the highest position in creation right now. But that is not the throne of David. Hmm, interesting. That's where the confusion comes in, and my focus this morning will be on that aspect of the throne of David. Hopefully, it will become clear. So last time we looked at a few passages in the Old Testament which gave us the conceptual framework of what the kingdom is and looks like. And I gave it to you in four points. The kingdom must have what? A king. Secondly, the kingdom must have a people and a realm. Thirdly, the kingdom must have a law, ethic, or government. And fourthly, which I changed slightly because... I changed the verb, um, was that the kingdom will be eternal, but to keep with the alliteration, I changed it to, the kingdom must reflect the nature of the king, which means it will be eternal. So those are the four conceptual frameworks that I have, at least the singular framework that I think the Old Testament gives and the New Testament echoes. We saw that the kingdom was expected to exist on earth. That is huge. We noted that the nature of the kingdom would be so drastically and dramatically different to our current world that even the animal kingdom will be affected. Remember that the lion will lie down with the lamb. I love that poetry. The child will lead the lion and the bear. I don't know about you, but I would not allow my child to lead a bear and a lion together at the same time. I don't think that that is possible now. Not even in a zoo where we, quote-unquote, have authority over animals. No, we don't. During this time, the kingdom, life will be extended. Which means those of you who are closer to the hundred years... That's going to be standard. In fact, that's going to be minimal. If you die at 100, people will frown on you. He must have sinned. There's no way that this person should die at 100, Isaiah 65. So dying at 100 would be considered to die as a youth. So so those of you who are getting close to the, the entrance of exiting life, you know what I mean. You would be young in the kingdom. All these Old Testament saints were expecting Messiah to come to earth and reign over his people. If you read the Old Testament in a literal way, that's how they would have understood it. And that's how we should understand it. Now when it comes to the New Testament, there's a little bit of a hermeneutical challenge. Because this is where New Testament scholars say, but the, uh, the New, Test, um, New Testament reinterprets the Old Testament. So that's what they say. Does the New Testament change, reinterpret, or supplant the Old Testament? The simple answer is no, it does not. The way we approach New Testament the way we understand the interaction between the New Testament and the Old Testament will determine how we interpret the kingdom. Because if the kingdom is a literal element in the Old Testament, when you get to the New Testament and you say, hang on, the Old Testament is actually not literal. There's a lot of figurative, metaphorical languages, so you can't take it literally in the New Testament. Then, if that is your view, your hermeneutical paradigm, then in the New Testament it will not be what? Literal, which means Christ doesn't come back to earth to reign on earth. That's a problem. Often we think that eschatology does not matter. It does. Eschatology affects how we live and the perspective we have for eternity or for the future. Every book in the Bible touches on the kingdom. I'm not going to be able to cover all 66 books. The future hope of the believer is wrapped up in the eschaton that is last time. When our great God and Savior will appear in vengeance and justice and to establish His kingdom. That's if you take the Old Testament literally. Eschatology matters because it affects what you do right now, and how you relate to life right now. If this is the kingdom, we should be reigning. If this is the kingdom, it's been 2,000 years since the time of Christ, you should be reigning over sinners and over the animal kingdom. I don't know about you, but it doesn't feel that way. Now, in the light of that reality, let's consider the new perspective of the kingdom. To do this, I'm going to toggle between old and new to show that as you enter the New Testament, they look at the Old Testament to inform their New Testament understanding of the kingdom. So firstly, what I want to focus on is the Davidic covenant in relation to kingdom theology. That is going to be the main theme that runs through the entire sermon. There's a lot of other things that we could go down, and maybe on Wednesday we can touch some of that. But that's the single theme that I want to highlight. Number one, the kingdom is linked to the king. That is like a duh point, right? That's a given. The kingdom is irremovable from the nature of the king. Understand In the Old Testament, God systematically declines the monarchy. It's God's will that the kings of Israel come to nothing. As the king goes, so the what? Kingdom goes. We in our day would say, as the government goes, so the culture goes. And we see that effect today. The sad reality for the nation of Israel, is that all their kings died. All of them. When you come to the New Testament, the line of the kings have been reduced to the supposed line of king living in squander, living in poverty, so much so that they can't raise the son of a king in a temple. He's born in a manger. When you go and read through Samuel and Kings, note the emphasis on the limitation of the lives of the kings. It will say something like, and David reigned for how many years? Forty years, thank you. And Solomon reigned for how many years? Old Testament students. Forty years, thank you, Mark and Hilton. And who was the last righteous king of Judah? No. (laughs) The last righteous king of Judah was Josiah, who reigned for 19 years, I believe. I can't remember the amount of years. And there are statements related to the righteous reign of these righteous kings that says something like this, And the king... Like in Josiah's time, did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh or of the Lord. Why mention this? Because there is a search and a yearning for a righteous king to reign over God's people. But every king died, and most of them were wicked. None of them reigned forever on the throne. Of David. Besides, after Solomon, the kingdom is split. Northern, and southern kingdoms. This is a crushing blow to the nation. Both Second Kings and Second Chronicles ends in the defeat of the line of David, the line of Judah. The last king, I believe, is Zedekiah, who flees from Jerusalem. He and the men of war. That is defeat. That is the last picture that Israel have of their lines of kings. It ends in defeat. Why does God allow that? To show that none of these men meet up to the requirement or the standard or the measure of the king who will sit on the throne forever. None of them were that. Which means the throne remains open. Now turn to 1 Chronicles 17. Yes, this is the New Testament perspective, but I want to point out to you a couple of truths that will set the stage for the New Testament perspective of the kingdom. I want you to note in 1 Chronicles after Kings, which is after Samuel, which is after Ruth, but before 2 Chronicles. So 1 Chronicles chapter 17, I want you to see this, and if you have a pen, you may want to take it out, significant, relates to the Davidic covenant, and it is Yahweh committing himself to David and his line. Take note of the language, David desires to build a house for God, and God responds And says in verse 8. And I have been with you wherever you have gone. And have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a name. Like the name of the great ones of the earth. Pause there. What does it sound like? Those of you Old Testament scholars. It should immediately spark a verse in the Old Testament. Abraham. The covenant with Abraham. I will make your name great. Huh? Interesting. This is a reaffirmation, a building onto that Abrahamic covenant. What happens with the covenants, it's that they are all linked. They all point to one verge, which is Christ. Abrahamic covenant comes through the Davidic covenant. In fact, look at the next line. I will make for you a name like the name of the great ones, and I will appoint a place, hang on, where does that come from? Abrahamic covenant. You will have a land for my people, Israel, but don't they have a place already? Yes, but they don't have it all. And I will plant them that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Is Israel disturbed at the moment? Uh, Yeah, they are, with wars on almost every side. Yes, they are disturbed. So this has not happened yet. Look down at verse 11. When your days are fulfilled and uh, to walk with your fathers, when you have lived your life and have died, that's to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. It is interesting that the euphemism or the the idiom here, to walk with your fathers, is a language of death. When David dies, he doesn't go to the grave. He goes to be with the great ones. The fathers. And I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. Don't get this wrong. That is not Solomon. I will raise up a son after you and I, not him, I will establish his kingdom. The same person is in view in verse 12. He shall build a house for me and I will establish his throne. So his kingdom, his throne forever. Hang on. I made a promise to David that his throne will be forever. Now, David's son's throne is going to last forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And I will not take my steadfast love from him. And a lot of scholars at this time say it's got to be Solomon. Because Solomon built a house for David. Hang on. Keep that in mind. Hang on. Not for David, for God. As I took it away from him who was before you, that was all. But I will confirm him, the son, in my house and in my kingdom. Wait. This is confusing. Whose kingdom is it? Well, his. But his kingdom is my kingdom. And his throne is shall be established forever. You know what that word forever means? I took some time and looked it up. You know what it means? It means forever. (laughs) That's what it means. To have an unending time. I don't believe this is Solomon. Because is Solomon still on the throne? No. No. It's not just the throne that is established. It's the one On the throne that is established as well. There's an important key in this promise. God says to David, I will establish his kingdom because his kingdom is my kingdom. And if he reigns on my throne, he will never be removed from the throne. Every king after Solomon was removed from the throne. Every king. That means this promise has not yet been fulfilled. Even if you see Solomon in verse 13, he died. Which means he's not on the throne anymore. So, even if that is Solomon, everything else then has to relate to somebody that will possess the throne forever. Name one person. That possesses the throne forever. Amen. <laughs> yes. Thank you, son. It is Jesus. So, how would, should we take First uh, Chronicles chapter 17, verse 2? Go over to Hebrews. My first line of defense is to show that the New Testament authors considered. That passage to relate to one person. Hebrews chapter 1, I believe it is verse 8. <clears throat> Look at what God says of his son. But of his son, he says, Your throne, O God, is what? You know what that word means? Forever. It's the same meaning, to have unending days. Your throne, O oh God, is forever. What do you notice before throne? Oh, sorry, after throne. The word God. Whose throne is it? God's throne. Look up at how the verse begins. But of the Son, He says, O oh God. The Son, therefore, is God. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Let me explain that. The scepter is the reign, the government, the rule is uprightness, is righteousness. Your government will be a righteous government. And that government will be the government of your kingdom. You get what is happening here? The author of Hebrews makes a link to the Davidic Covenant. The throne is forever comes from the Davidic Covenant. But that throne is reserved for one person. It is the son. But did David not say that? Sorry, did God not say that to David? And he will be a what? Son to me. You're not David's son. He will be a son to me, in other words, he will be my son. Note the words throne and kingdom. Throne and kingdom. It is connected. The kingdom is connected to the throne, which is connected to the one on the throne. Let me restate that. The kingdom will last as long as the one who sits on the throne. Make sense? The kingdom will last as long as the one who sits on the throne. Who's the kingdom given to? The son who is God. Yes, the son is Jesus. The son who is God, and God lives forever. Which means the throne is eternal. I think that's pretty simple to understand, don't you? Pretty simple, right? The kingdom will reflect the king in his reign. The kingdom has a throne, and the kingdom has a government. Take note that the scepter, the reign, the government, is righteous. Its uprightness is as were they righteous. The Son is what? Righteous. The kingdom will reflect. The son, the one on the throne, sets the standard and the nature of the kingdom. The New Testament authors look back into the Old Testament and they understood it, for what it meant back then. This is not a changing of the language. That's a continuation of the same language. There are multiple elements of theology that verges on this verse converges on this verse. Prophecies related to Isaiah, the Davidic covenant, the seed promise, and the Abrahamic covenant all converge on the reality that he fulfills those covenants. But there is something else (coughs) that I want you to see. And we'll go back to sonship. So firstly, the kingdom cannot be removed from the king. And secondly, the kingdom is linked to sonship. I made that point, but I want to point it out again. The king kingdom is linked to sonship. In the very covenant, the promise is made by God that he will be to me a son. And don't think that I'm going to adopt him as a son. It means that he is my son. He will be the son of the Most High. Now go to Matthew. Keep the very covenant in mind. He will be to me a son, and his throne will be established forever. Matthew chapter 1. This is called the theology of sonship. And if you have time, I spent part of my last reading in the New Testament to look at this. It is everywhere. Theology of the Son. Look at verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Very strange way to begin Matthew. Normally, the genealogy is about the father uh, or uh, one of the kings, but it starts with the son, the one who would be born of the line, the son of David, the son of Abraham. What do we do with that? Both covenants, Abrahamic covenant and Davidic covenant, converges on this one. Mm. Both the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant Finds their fulfillment in Jesus. Look down at verse 21. She shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. It is interesting that Matthew chooses the word son. Could he have said, and you will bear a boy. Could he have said that? There is a word in Greek that says this could be a boy. But he doesn't choose that. He uses a son. And all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Hmm. Isaiah 7.14 Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear what? A son. It's not his son. She shall be a son, and they shall call his name Immanuel, which means God with us. That means that the Son is God. You can see where I'm going. Go to Luke 1, verse 31. I'm going to read from verse 30. This is the angel Gabriel speaking to this young lass who has now received this vision, or I should say visitation, by the angel. And the angel, Gabriel, speaking, said to her, Mary, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, and bear what? A son. And you shall call his name Jesus. And from Matthew, we know that Jesus means Yahweh saves. For he shall save his people from from their sin. But look at the next line. 32. And he will be great, and he will be called what? The son of the most high. Not Mary's son. The sonship Relates to his divine relationship with the Father. The Son of the Most High. Hmm. And, that is Isaiah. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Wait a minute now. Why mention that? Why mention this? Because the, Old Testament, the, the New Testament writers understood that the Old Testament writers thought of a literal throne that was promised to David. Look again. And will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Where does that language, language come from? 1 Chronicles. Chapter 17, he will reign forever. He will sit on the throne forever. And his kingdom, of his kingdom, there will be no end. That is Isaiah 9 6. There is so many Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled at this one point. But very significant is the literal expectation of the giving of the throne of David to the Son of the Most High. The throne will be eternal because the Son is eternal. The Son of the Most High. Right in here, it says something which often is overlooked. Notice what it says. And he will reign over the house of Jacob. Why Jacob? When Israel was formed it was a united kingdom also synonymously used with the term Jacob. Jacob yes was the father but when it's used of the nation it speaks of their unified existence before the split before the tribes split. In other words he will reign over the tribes as they will be unified under him Again, give me a time in history when Israel, post-Zedekiah, was unified again and reigned over as Jacob or Israel. Any, any period in history? No. Because even at the time that when Jesus is born, they are split. They are not a unified nation. This sounds familiar because Old Testament theology is re explained, re repeated in the New Testament scriptures, but not reinterpreted. What Luke is saying here is that he's expecting the throne of David to be established, still, not metaphorically, still, literally. Keep your hand here. Go back to Isaiah chapter 9. Make sure you keep your hand here because we'll fill it back. Isaiah, which follows Song of Solomon, which follows Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, and Psalms, but just before Jeremiah. Isaiah 9, and most of us know this verse of by heart. But what I want to show you here is the interconnectedness of Scripture. Notice how Isaiah makes a distinction between the two. Verse 6, For unto us a child is born. We receive a child. You could have said, for unto us a boy is given. That is fine. That would have been perfect. This is in reference to the first coming of the Messiah. For unto us a child is born, to us, what? A son is given. To the son, the government, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. What government? The righteous government that he will execute. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, prince of peace, and of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. In other words, he will reign forever and ever. In other words, there will be no end to the throne. In fact, that's what it says in the next line. On the throne of David. Why does that sound familiar? Because that is what Luke chapter 1 quotes. On the throne of David and over his kingdom." to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time. What time? The time that it sits on the throne. From that time forth and forevermore. Last line is so important. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will do this. No one ushers in the kingdom. Nobody. It is Christ that establishes his own kingdom. What you see here is that the New Testament writers understood this to mean what it says in the Old Testament. He will ascend to the throne of David. He's going to take his seat as the son. Sonship is not only linked to his deity, it's linked to the throne. Luke is saying the same thing in the same way, in the same context. Luke does not reinterpret it. Doesn't change it, doesn't add meaning to it, doesn't supplant the meaning. He says the Son is coming, and He will take His place on the throne of David. Okay, well, if that is then the first advent, tell me when Jesus went into Jerusalem to take the throne of David. Any event? No, because He did not. He did not ascend to the throne. So, what you have in Isaiah 9 is both the Advent, the first Advent, and the second Advent following each other. What you have in Luke chapter 1 is both the first Advent and the second Advent following each other. He will be born as a son and he will ascend to the throne. Why? Because to them, if the first happened, you can presume that the second will happen. It doesn't mean chronologically in time, it doesn't mean when he comes the first time, he will go to the throne. That's not what it means. It just means that if he came the second ti- the first time, you can be guaranteed that he will come the second time to take his place on the throne. Sun- sonship, yes, signifies deity. But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will reign for or is forever. But sonship is also linked to. The throne. So then, if we accept that Luke, Matthew, Isaiah and uh, the author of First Chronicles are talking about the same thing, a literal throne in Jerusalem where the Son of God will sit on the throne, where does the reinterpretation of the Old Testament start? If right in the beginning chapters of the Gospel, they look back and say, yes, literal throne in Jerusalem. And he will take his seat. When does the metaphorical or figurative uh, language then begin? If the first advent relates to the saving work of Israel, is literal, I should say, of his people, is literal, then you can be guaranteed that the second advent, the second coming, with him coming to sit on the throne, is also what? Literal. It's expected. Sonship is connected to the throne. If there's any book in the New Testament that magnifies the connection of the king as the son to the throne, it's the book Matthew. Um, Look at verse 1 again. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Go down to the end, verse 23. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and be a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us at the end. And he called his name Jesus. Over and over, Jesus is referenced as the son who's also the king. The, 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 The mention of David and the line of David is related to his kingship. In Matthew 1 through to 4, the king's advent is explained that he came. He's already come. The king's authority is in chapter 5 to verse 9, where he he establishes who he is. In chapter 10 through to 12, it's the king's agenda or his government. In chapter 13 through 17, we see his adversaries, the king's adversaries. In chapter 18 to 23, the king's administration. How he will rule in in chapter 24 through to 25, it's the king's arbitration. How he will judge in chapter 26 to 28, it's the king's atonement. The king dies for his people. But in chapter 28, to six, uh, verse 16 through to 19, we find the king's announcement. Matthew focuses on Jesus as the son who is king. The kingdom is inestimably connected to the son. Matthew chapter 4 is so significant. It is the father that says, this is my beloved what? Son in whom I am well pleased. Nobody deserves the throne other than Jesus. This is not a reinterpretation of the kingdom. This is not a metaphorical interpretation of the kingdom. It is a literal interpretation of the Old Testament. So let me just take a minute to explain the duration of the kingdom because there is an argument that says, well, hang on. If this is the case, then Christ will only reign for a thousand years because that's what Revelation 20. We will look at that in a moment. How is that forever then? So then this can't be um, related to Christ. Surely just it's metaphorical. It's got to be figurative because if he reigns for a short period of time, he's not reigning forever. So then it just means that he will have authority over all things forever. That's what it means. There are different views on how long the kingdom will last. Um, What we can take from first Chronicles seventeen is the kingdom will be forever, because the throne will be forever, because the one on the throne will, will reign forever. What we take away from Matthew chapter one is that the king will last forever. What we take away from Luke chapter one is that the king will reign forever. So if it's forever, then what do we do with the millennium? Turn to Revelation chapter twenty. Revelation twenty which is the last book in the New Testament before you get your maps and your dictionary. So if you are looking at maps, you have probably gone too far. Revelation 20. How long will the kingdom last? How can the kingdom be forever, and also you have a limitation or a time limit on it? How can that be? Well, the answer is simple. The kingdom will last as long as the sun Make sense? That's why I said the throne, the kingdom is connected to the sun." Verse twi- chapter 20, verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key of the bottomless pit, and a great chain. Hmm. And he sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. They're all one. Bound him up for a thousand years and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he may not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. So clearly a thousand years is in view. That's where we get the idea millennium from. Not the millennials like today. And that he must be released for a little while. So bound up for a thousand year period, and then for a short while he is released on earth again to deceive the nations. Verse 4 through to the end explains what happens in the millennium. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was given or committed. Hmm. So then, those who are with the Son, in the Son, belonging to the Son, will reign with the Son as long as He reigns, right? Notice what it says in verse, uh, let me just read on. Uh, And I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, that is in the tribulation, which precedes this time, and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or the image and had not received the mark, which takes place in the tribulation, on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Hang on. Are we going to reign forever or do we just reign for a thousand years? So the saints who die in the um, tribulation period, they get raised to life in the millennium period. We who have died before that come down with Christ, as you read um, Matthew 24 and 25 speaks about that. We come down with Christ and we reign with him. But now it says for a thousand years, so then what? The kingdom must be a thousand years, right? Well, read on. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection, though the, the resurrection of the dead. Those who died in the tribulation, they who ra- were raised in the millennium. They are the first to be raised in the millennium, and then they are those who get raised after that. So don't get confused here with Paul's mention of first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him how long? A thousand years. Wait a minute. So then the kingdom is not forever. Because it it says here that Christ will reign on earth for a thousand years. Well, that's not the end. Go to chapter 22. 22. Look down at verse 5. Actually, look down at verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their forehead. So instead of taking the mark of the beast, they receive the mark of the sun. And, uh, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamb or sun. For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign, what does that say? Forever and ever. I took some time and looked up that word forever. It still means forever. That's what it means. So then, there's two aspects of His reign. There's the millennium expression of His reign on earth. That means that Christ is going to return and reign in the realm over the people that rejected Him in this world. So He has to come as the Son to this world, reign over unrighteous people who rejected Him as the Son and as the Messiah and as the King. And He will reign over them for a thousand years. We who are His people will get to reign with Him over the unrighteous for a thousand years. And when that period has ended, He establishes the new heaven and the new earth, and we with Him will reign forever and ever. Why? Because the Son on the throne will reign forever. Make sense? There is no end to His reign because He never ceases to exist. So firstly... We say that the kingdom is coupled to the reality of the king. And secondly, we saw that the kingdom is intimately linked to sonship. Now, thirdly, I have about 10 minutes left. The kingdom was expected to be corporeal. If You don't know what that means. You can look it up on Google or do a search, but I'll tell you, it just means a physical reality. That's always been the case. The kingdom was expected to be a physical reality. Look at Luke chapter nineteen. This will be quick. It's one of my shorter points. Luke nineteen verse eleven. <clears throat> you got to understand the the context here. Jesus has performed quite a number of miracles up to uh, up until this point. He has demonstrated his power over death. He's demonstrated his power over um, the demons he's demonstrated his power over illnesses he's just done so much look at verse 11 as they heard these things um, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to jerusalem so keep that in mind so jesus is going to tell them a parable because he's entering jerusalem he's going towards jerusalem Why does he tell the parable? And because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. I don't know about you, but when I read that, I think I mentioned it to another believer in the week. I read this um, quite a few times, and this last couple of weeks I've been reading the Gospels just to look at the sequence of the kingdom in the Gospels. This stood out to me. They believed that the kingdom was going to begin immediately in their time on this earth why they saw the things he did they heard the truth that he spoke they made the connections he's going to jerusalem but they thought wrongly so jesus then goes and tells a parable and i'm going to speak a little bit about that in a moment's time what happens here is that they understood the old testament theology about the kingdom to mean that jesus will establish the messiah will establish the son of god will establish his kingdom on earth over people it's not glorified it's not spiritualized it is not metaphorical they got it in their time but the timing was wrong in fact what jesus explains here is that he rejects their acceptance and you will see that in mom's time so Jesus tells him a parable about this nobleman, starting in verse 12. A nobleman went into a far country, take note of the language, to receive for himself a kingdom, and then return, calling the ten of his servants. He gave them ten minors and said to them, engage business until I come. Hmm. Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered the servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they gained by doing business, literally Mm -hmm. his business. And then he explains how they came. But look down at verse 17. And he said to him, Well done, good Some translations would say, and faithful servant, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. And then he goes down to five cities, and then I think it's one city. Look down in verse 22, and he said to him, I will condemn you. Actually, not one city, it's the guy who got the least, who did not um, use the uh, money that, The master gave him, he he kept it in a handkerchief, and now he's being judged. Verse 22, and he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow, meaning that I didn't literally do it, but it is mine nonetheless. Why then did you put my money in the bank? Why did you not put my money in the bank? The least you could have done is let it incur interest by itself. And at my coming I may have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the minute from him and give it to the one who has ten minas And they said to him, Lord, yes, ten minutes. In, in other words, he's already got enough. And I Jesus says, I tell you to everyone who has, more will be given, because they've been faithful, so they get more. But from the one who has, who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for the enemies, so even though he is saved, he will still receive a blessing. That is eternal life. But uh, as for the enemies, so in contrast to the servants, the enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Two things happening. Blessing for those who are faithful and judgment for those who... Reject him. What's the point of the parable? It's not faithfulness. The point of the parable is not the fact that God is going to cast or reward the faithful servants. The point of the parable is this the king has a kingdom, the king was rejected, the king will go away, but the same king will return to reign in his kingdom. That's the point. Notice how it starts. Verse 12. A nobleman went into a far country. He left to receive a kingdom for himself. Coming down to earth, receiving a kingdom for himself. And then to return. So what Jesus is saying is that I came, offered the kingdom, you rejected. But now I'm going to go away. And when I come back, I will reward faithfulness, and I will judge those who rejected me. Look at verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Beth uh, Beth H. and Bethany, on the mount that is called Olivet, or the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying, go to the village, go get the donkey, tell the guy the, the master has sent for his donkey, and they'll send the donkey back. Look down at verse 38, saying, this is the people, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, do you not hear what they are saying? They are making you out to be God and king. They got it. What happens here is this is known as the triumphant entry. This is not the triumphant entry of Zechariah chapter 9 verse 10. This is Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9. The king will ride into Jerusalem on a mule. Why? To die. Not to reign. Verse 10 Yes, he will reign. They misunderstood what was happening at this stage. And Jesus rejects their profession. Blessed is the king. Jesus rejects their acceptance because they wanted him to go to Jerusalem to reign. And he says, this is not that time. That is why the king is going to go away. And then when he returns, he will establish his kingdom. Look at verse 41. When he drew near, saw the city, wept over it. 42. Saying, would that even you had known on this day the things that would bring about peace or make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. You rejected me, and now I will hide it from you. You rejected me as king, so you will not receive the kingdom. Why? Why? Look right down at the end of verse 44. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. You didn't recognize me for who I was. Jesus rejects the triumphant entry. He rejects the acceptance. It's not just enough to say Jesus is king. It's not enough to say Jesus is Lord. It's not enough to say, yes, he will reign. You gotta bow before him as king and submit to him as Lord and then worship him for who he is, which is both king and God. They did neither. They made a verbal acceptance or profession of who Jesus was. The cities denied him, rejected him. The people denied him, rejected him. The Pharisees denied him and rejected him. And so Jesus. At the end of chapter 19, he rejects them. says, nope, you won't get the kingdom. Look at Matthew 23. I have two minutes left. Matthew 23, 37. So when will the kingdom come? 37. It's not 23, it could be 24. I think it's 37. Um, For as... No, it's not that one. Oh, there it is. 29. Immediately after the tribulation... Uh, so it's 24:29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven shall be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet and they will gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the heavens when will the kingdom be established when the sun returns and this is that after the tribulation Matthew 25 verse 1 the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins. And he explains um, what the kingdom is like. But look down at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, with all his angels, with all his angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. That's when the kingdom is established. So after the tribulation, in the future, when he comes, he will sit On his glorious throne. So the timing of the kingdom has been established, but the date of the kingdom has never been given. It's never been given. So it is presumptuous to to give a date when Christ didn't give a date. So why does it matter? Let me give you quick four reasons why it matters. It matters because it mattered to Jesus. If you go to Acts chapter 1, verse 3, you don't have to go there, but if you write it down, Acts chapter 1, verse 3, he spends 40 days. 40 days. 43 days, 40 days to tell them about the kingdom, to teach them about the kingdom. He mattered to Jesus in verse 7 or 6 or 7, I believe. They say to him, Is it now that you will establish the kingdom to Israel? Will you restore the kingdom to Israel? They still believed in the literal kingdom after the resurrection, verse 7 to 9. So it is presumptuous to give a date when Jesus didn't give the date. After his resurrection, he says to them, you don't know the time. You don't need to know the time. That's the, the Father's plan. You don't need to be given the time. So if it is AD 70, hmm, wouldn't he have just said in a couple of years time, don't worry about it, AD 70, the kingdom will be established. If it's at the first advent, should he not have said, well, the kingdom is here. It's been established. You will reign with me forever. But he doesn't. He says, don't worry about it. The time is not yet. But... He does say this, you will be my witnesses. Now is the time of the Spirit. When the Spirit comes, He will cause you to be my witnesses. In Judea, um, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and up to the uttermost parts of the world, earth. So in other words then, this is not the time of the kingdom. Because it is this time is the time of the Spirit. So if this is the time of the Spirit, it's not the time of the kingdom. So, firstly, it matters to Christ. Secondly, we do not reign now. I want to see. I want you to see this. First Corinthians chapter four. Um, like I like this. The sarcasm in this is really funny. First Corinthians chapter four. Paul, in defence of the fact that we are not in the kingdom, says this: Already you have all you want. Hmm. So, kingdom would mean. God will provide every need that you have. Already you have all that you want. You've already become rich. (laughs) There's sarcasm in that. Without us, you have become kings. So in other words, you already reign. That's what he says in the next line. And would that you did reign, so that we may share the rule with you. That is kingdom language. So the Corinthians thought, this is the kingdom. He's come. We are reigning. And Paul says, oh, really? So you're already kings. You're already reigning. So this must be it. Oh, really, man. I-, I wish that it was because then we would be reigning with you. In other words, this is not the kingdom. Look at verse 10. In fact, let me read verse 9. For I think that God has exhibited us, us as as apostles, as As last of all, like men sentenced to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. But you, you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you, you are strong. You are held in honor, but we are in disrepute. Now look here, there's a contrast between believing that you are in the kingdom. Notice what Paul says, to the present hour, we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor. Hey, wait, 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 wait. So, to the present hour, up to this moment, we, as God's people, hunger, thirst, poorly dressed, buffeted, and are homeless. How's that for a gospel presentation? God has a good plan for your life. Come, but you may, in the process, be poor, buffeted, hunger, thirst, or be homeless. Not really the message you want to give to people. In fact, that's the opposite of the message that we have today. Paul says, now is the time to suffer. Now is the time for endurance. Now is the time for persecution. Now is not the time to reign. Paul contrasts the reality of this life with the kingdom life. If you are reigning, this should not be taking place. It matters because it affects our future hope. Number three, it matters because Scripture tells us to live ready. Matthew chapter twenty-five, verse one, it gives the uh, the parable of the, the ten virgins, um, and some of them are foolish and some of them are wise. And then at the end, I believe it's verse. Let me see, verse thirteen. It says they were not ready when the bridegroom came, and he says, "Be ready, for you do not know what time the bridegroom will come." It matters because it affects how you live. If Jesus is still coming, and he is, then surely we should be living for him. It matters, finally, because it impacts the implication for the existence of God. You may not think this, but this is the reality. In the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 40, I believe it is, God makes a challenge to idols, not to the people, to idols, to gods that do not exist. And he says to them, You tell me what will happen. You give me a prophecy. And I believe that you exist. But not only tell me the future. Go back and tell me the past. Tell me how things develop. Tell me the, the nature, the origin of all things. And I will believe that you exist. And if you can't do that, then you do not exist. In fact, go beyond that and bring the very prophecy that you give to pass. If you can't do that, then you are not God. And God says, I, the Lord, bring it. In other words, I don't just give prophecy. I don't just tell you what is going to come. i tell you how it began. And in in including that, I bring every word that I promise about. That means I am God. If we don't believe that God is able to establish his kingdom, we impugn the very character of God. That's how serious it is. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful. Uh, to you for your great kindness in the truth that fills almost every chapter in this book of yours. The truth that your kingdom will be established. We give thanks that we have being granted grace during this time this is the time of endurance this is the time of suffering this is the time that we have to be faithful to you in sharing the gospel with the lost and to live our lives as you require us to that is the implication of the kingdom that we live rightly before you now pray that you would wake us up Lord we do not reign now but we will reign in a future day with you Thank you again for your grace in saving our souls. And there are those who do not know you, who are not uh, kingdom citizens. We pray that you would draw them and make them your children as you honor yourself through your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.